Today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkshua and the sons of Saul, and the battle went heavily against Saul. And the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead. He also fell on the sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and of the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Ashkathroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Gabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Gabash and fasted for seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue our scripture reading from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked, tell me. The men fled from battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked, he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. 
and I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his, his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David said to him, your blood will be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, thanks to both of our readers. Uh, a long reading today, but a short sermon. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we enter into the book of Samuel this morning, our prayer is that we would know you more and that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. Amen. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And Jesus' point is not that the kingdom of God can't be recognized, but that the kingdom does not come in the way people generally expect. In the church, we're always hoping that God will do something big. We're always praying for God to intervene in dramatic ways in our world. We look for the spectacular, and surely that's right, isn't it? That speaks of God, the creator of all things. He is great and mighty and marvelous and all the superlatives that we can think of. We want to see the sudden and breathtaking growth of the church as a sign of God's blessing. We long for huge numbers of people to come to faith. Of course, we put it in spiritual terms, calling it revival, rather than admitting that what we're after is excitement. We want to be in the midst of God doing something spectacular in our age. But when we turn to the Bible, while there are certainly some remarkable miracles on a grand scale, we're blind if we do not see that throughout the vast majority of Scripture, God starts small. Some months ago, we set off with David, the overlooked youngest of eight brothers from an unimportant uh, part immigrant family from the little town of Bethlehem, yet chosen by God to replace Saul as king. And finally, we've come to the day when it happens, when the throne becomes David's. Now, I think that we would expect that day to have been a momentous occasion, filled with celebration, triumph, and glory. But in fact, the writer of the book of Samuel 
tells us that the transfer of the crown is marked by death, destruction, deceit, grief, and lament. There is, of course, a significant obstacle to David ever reaching the throne. There is already a king, Saul. At first, David serves Saul as a musician and then as a soldier. Then Saul, in his jealousy of David's success on the battlefield, turns on him. And for the next several years, David is on the run in fear for his life. Eventually, running from Saul grinds David's faith down so that he seeks safety among the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. But as we noted last week, he comes to the point of realizing how far from God he's drifted, and he turns back to the Lord. And having learned this great lesson, he is finally ready to take his place, representing the rule of God on the throne of Israel. The first uh, six verses of 1 Samuel chapter 31 describe how Saul's rule over Israel comes to an end. Verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his son Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishur. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Saul's death is allowed to come to pass by the Lord as a judgment on him for repeated significant acts of disobedience, for his failure to turn back to the Lord despite repeated warnings from the prophet Samuel, and for his failure to accept the Lord's sovereign choice of David to succeed him as king. Saul's death in battle against the Philistines is significant. Throughout the period of the judges and the early kings of Israel, the Philistines are the arch enemy of the people of God. More than anyone else, the Philistines are the very enemies a great leader of Israel has to protect his people from. In the end, Saul, who has wasted all his energies trying to catch and kill David, cannot even save himself from them. And the writer of Samuel says, when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. Here's the big moment. Saul is dead. There's nothing between David and the throne. David has an army of mighty men. Here's the moment to swoop down on these Philistines, defeat them, and be raised to the throne in a blazing cloud of glory, a great statement of God's power at work in David. Surely, this is the moment for a grand declaration. But David is walking closely with the Lord, and God 
starts small. Listen to how the writer of the book of Samuel reports the news of Saul's death in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. The Amalekite story is a lie. We know this because we know that Saul took his own life. The Amalekite is actually a thief who is plundering bodies on the battlefield when he comes across the body of Saul. He takes the crown and the armband and brings them to David because he sees an opportunity for advancement with the next king. He expects to be received as one bringing good news. But for David, this is not a moment for a coronation. Far from celebrating and rushing off to take the throne, David and his men are gripped with grief for those who'd been seeking their lives. Incidentally, it's no coincidence that the bearer of this news, who takes the crown from Saul's head, is an Amalekite. It was Saul's failure to defeat the Amalekites, the the very task he had been given by the Lord when he was appointed as king, which led to him forfeiting his throne. So an Amalekite taking the crown from Saul's head and passing it on to David is a picture of the story of Saul's kingship. Because Saul failed to follow the Lord, the Amalekites took the crown from his head, metaphorically, and presented David with his opportunity to rule. And here it is, enacted as a parable for us. But David's response is not to grasp the crown and throw a great celebration, but to grieve. We need to pause here for a moment to step out of David's story and say a word about lament. The pandemic presently taking the lives of people all over the world cries out for lament. Not the lament light that we often see on social media or on television, but lament in its full, faithful, biblical sense. What is lament? Well, it is not the immediate outpouring of emotion that is David's first reaction. Verse 11, then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. That's the first flush of grief. Lament is something born out of a deeper reflection on what those who have died have meant to us and to others, the significance of their lives and what their deaths mean, what the world owed them, and what, what the world is now without them. 
The second half of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1 is taken up with a lament that David writes and instructs the people of Judah to learn. Let me quote just a few words. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. How the mighty have fallen. Well, I'll leave you to read the rest of the whole thing yourself. The writer of Samuel tells us, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. The point is that this is written grief, considered grief. This is the mind and the emotions working together. If you like, this is the discipline of grief, thinking and writing, not simply feeling. Many of us are not good at grieving, and in our present circumstances with so many who've lost so much, we need a fresh approach to grief and loss, where we can enter into it in deeper and healthier and more meaningful ways. I wonder if learning written lament of the kind that we have a whole book of in Scripture, maybe that would be a significant part of the Bible's answer to the tragedy of our time. David's first decree as king of Judah is for people to be taught this lament. Why learn this? Because it paints a picture of reality for the Israelites, a vision of the world for those who, notwithstanding this crushing defeat, will have to face the Philistines again in the future. Dale Ralph Davis points out the same principle is at work in the state of Israel today. The Israel Armored Corps swear their oath of allegiance on top of the old fortress of Masada. And Masada was a, a fortress west of the Dead Sea where in AD 72-73 some 960 Jews held out against Flavius Silva's Roman army. After seven months of siege, the Romans breached the fortress, but they were denied the pleasure of Jewish blood since the defenders had committed suicide during the night. Masada then stands as a symbol of courage, and Israeli troops today stand on its summit to swear their oath of allegiance. Masada shall not fall again. The battle at Gilboa was not the last time Israel would fight Philistines. And David wanted his men to remember Gilboa, remember the tragedy, remember the pagan arrogance. He wanted them deeply stirred and moved for the next time. And the words of David's lament are striking. Remember, this is a man who spent the last several years running for his life from Saul. This is a man who has lost his closest friend in Jonathan. And yet he holds Saul and Jonathan, his worst enemy and his best friend, together. Saul and Jonathan were mighty warriors, loved and admired in life. And he describes equally their valor in battle. 
David is gracious to Saul, even after his death. He still accords Saul the honor due to the anointed of the Lord, even when Saul has sinned so grievously, even when Saul is no longer around to hear him. Now we see the character of David. All those times in the past when he gave honor to Saul, he wasn't faking it. David was aware of the dreadful things that Saul had done, not least to him. But he does not take even the opportunity of his death to try to put the record straight. So you see, to return to our main theme, it's not in the public spectacle of a coronation, the, the big show, but in private grief, the small secret moments that David is proved worthy of his prominent place in God's kingdom. Jesus said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, Saul is dead. David has been the anointed king in waiting for many years. The crown has been placed in his hands. But still, David does not move to take the throne. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. There it is. David is king. One sentence. Not even that. One clause. There they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David isn't even the subject of the sentence. The men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David. And he's still not king over Israel. Only one tribe, the tribe of Judah. God starts small. There's no description of the event, just this brief note. After all of the years of struggle, all of the victories, all of the mistakes, all of the sacrifices, all of the prayers, one little phrase, they anointed David king over the house of Judah. God starts small. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. And the story of David's rise to the throne illustrates that clearly. The great things of God come from the smallest of seeds. 
Dale Ralph Davis says, here for the first time in human history, God's chosen king visibly rules on earth. At Hebron, in the provincial backwater, over only one tribe, it's a small beginning, but it is the kingdom of God, concrete, visible, earthly. The kingdom of God has, for the moment, tucked itself away in the hills of Judah. Because the kingdom of God has never come, and still today does not come, in the ways people generally expect. God starts small. The kingdom comes in the ordinary stuff of life, the seemingly small acts of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness that the Spirit of God calls us to practice every day. Often it's not recognized as the kingdom, not understood. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that the kingdom is often hidden, like a treasure buried in a field, or again, the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus' point is that God's work starts small. In fact, it often appears tiny, but it will not remain small. It will become the largest plant in the garden. It will spread through all the dough. Jesus' point is that God's work is often hidden. Nothing appears to be happening, but it will not remain hidden. It will spread and have the most extraordinary influence everywhere. So sisters and brothers, do not despise the small things. Do not discount that brief conversation or that small act of faith. Do not despair of that brief but persistent prayer. Do not give up on those small acts of, of obedience in response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Don't long for the dramatic, the spectacular, and the multitude. Instead, be on the lookout for opportunities to cooperate with God in planting small seeds of the kingdom everywhere. That is how David's kingdom began. That is how the kingdom of God always begins. Will you pray with me? Lord, forgive us for the times that we think nothing of what you're doing in the world or in our lives or in our church when we don't even recognize your activity because we're looking for something that seems bigger and more impressive. Lord, help us to have eyes to see the small things you are doing and hearts and minds willing to act on what you're calling us into. Help us recognize the prompting of your spirit, the invitation of your spirit to plant small seeds of the kingdom everywhere by being willing to do the humblest things, just as David was, just as Jesus was. Let us be faithful to you in the smallest things we pray. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.